and welcome to another edition of Turn to the Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, an amazing guest, a friend of mine, and someone I'm a huge fan of, both in and out of the ring, professional wrestler Daniel Makabe, small room specialist. We'll get to all of this in a second and more. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but this one I booked myself, Tristan Abraham, and you will get the message to me. You can also find uh, a Turned Out of Punk Instagram that he runs, at Turned Out of Punk. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, I am at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by heading over to turnedoutapunk.com and picking up a t-shirt. Thank you to everyone that has done that. We've restocked some sizes that were out, and so if you uh, are looking for certain sizes, they're back. Uh, unfortunately, once again, though, Canadian shipping is a little high right now. We're trying to figure that out, so bear with us in Canada. But uh, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash punk. and thank you to everyone that does do that. Check out some of the stuff that gets put up over there, including video versions of some of the episodes, uh, footnotes episodes, lost episodes, all sorts of weird stuff. And thank you. Thank you once again to everyone that does do that. You can also support the show by telling all your friends about it, subscribing to it and rating it and giving it a five-star review on iTunes. And thank you to people that do do that. And uh, that is it. All right. On Oh, I also play in a band called Fucked Up. You can find out more information about us over at fuckedup.cc. We've got a bunch of records that are in stores or out now on all sorts of great labels, uh, including... Get Better Records and and Matador Records and uh, Tank Crimes, of course, Tank Crimes Records. And also we've got some fucked up stuff that we're putting on ourselves. So check out all of that stuff over at fuckedup.cc. And uh, yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave that at that. It's very complicated to get into touring and all that sort of stuff right now. Because uh, who knows? Who knows? But... On to today's show. Today on the show, my friend Daniel Makabe is here. And he is someone that I was first a fan of as a wrestler, watching him in the ring, and then following him on Twitter, realizing that he's a huge music fan, only to come to find out that he is, you know, I've spoken to him several times over the years and played shows uh, to him over the years too, in several places around, uh, I guess around the country, but certainly in Vancouver area and stuff. So this was, you know, a very long time coming. This is something that we've tried to put together for, for well years at this point, but now it has finally happened. I'm very excited for you to hear it. This also couldn't come at a better time because there's a great companion piece to this written by my good buddy, Martin Douglas, over there at kexp.org. It's called Throwaway Style, The Providence of Daniel Makabe. And check this piece out. It's a fantastic read and really contextualizes why this guy is such a, I don't know, such a cool punk rock wrestling hybrid in the sense that what he's trying to do is sort of apply the same sort of DIY punk rock ethics to wrestling and that he is 
to his music. So anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. You're going to hear him talk about all this sort of stuff and, and more. Uh, but uh, that is it. Uh, so sit back, relax, and enjoy Daniel Macabe on Turned Out a Punk. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. I uh, it's been a dream. I've been a, a a listener for like basically since the beginning, and uh, and I'm ready to be the uh, least notable person ever on uh, an episode of Turned Out a Punk. So let's go. Oh, don't worry. No, I've had tons and tons of way less notable people than you, All my right. friend. And That's there will be, that. and it will never end on that front. But no, I you're someone, because obviously everyone knows I love wrestling, but I think if there's anyone in wrestling that has a, first of all, a love for this music deeper than you, well, there, there are a few, right? Like Brookside, obviously. There are a few people that are as deep heads as yourself on this music stuff. But also, I think career-wise, like you are someone who has had an unabashedly proud independent wrestling career and like you've managed to kind of build your reputation on like DIY kind of like just building it up show by show. It kind of looks like as like an outside fan type thing. And so, yeah, you're like, you're like very like the DIY hardcore band of pro wrestling. So I think you fit in very well on this show. I, I like that, that uh, I, I take that as a compliment and that's certainly there are certain DIY uh, ethics that I absolutely am mindful of when it comes to uh, my wrestling and, and merchandising and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I see the comparison now. I appreciate that. Well, we'll get to wrestling because I, I will. Uh, I figured I, we will. <laughs> <laughs> we got to start them off the way they all can start off, which is, Daniel, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I've been thinking about how I would answer this question for like literally five years. Like every time I listen to an episode, I'm like one day it would be cool to be on this show and, and have my, my cool answer to this question. And I honestly don't know what the answer is. Like, I don't have a real strong memory of my first encountering of it. I, I have a suspicion and this is something that I think we'll come back to a lot. And it's certainly something that, you're familiar with um, because so much of my kind of musical discovery, certainly as a young person, but even later on in life comes through much music mm -hmm. and uh, specifically like the CanCon laws too. Like a lot of bands that I otherwise probably wouldn't have heard of. Cause like they weren't even necessarily getting radio play on like mainstream rock stations here in Vancouver. So um, like I distinctly remember seeing, uh, like a music video for, I want to be sedated being played all, all the time on much music. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then beyond that, like, I think it's, it's, you know, a lot of other people's first real, um, uh, introduction and, and it's, you know, it's Nirvana, it's, it's Green Day, it's, it's all those bands kind of breaking and, uh, and being everywhere as far as uh, media was concerned. Yeah. Like it feels like much music. Um, you know, I was thinking about this a lot. Like it was definitely much more progressive at the time than commercial radio. It feels like, you know, in, in certainly Toronto. Like I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm, you know, I was, I was a kid. Right. So, but I grew up listening to 
our you know rock station here in vancouver 99.3 the fox and um they weren't playing a bunch of you know i'll, I'll say interesting or like different things like i found out about gob you know yeah. who are a band from my my own backyard uh you know they grew up in langley british columbia i grew up in surrey those cities are right next to each other and i found out about gob because they'd always play the video for soda on much music so mm -hmm. Um, it, you know, I wasn't hearing them played on, on local radio. So. Yeah. Well, and, and like, even like uh, the handsome brothers or like um, uh, DOA or DBS or all these sorts of bands, like they had videos that much music would play and like, yeah, like you wouldn't necessarily hear that on even CFMY. CFMY is like, you know, had a great uh, playlist. They had like this really cool uh, show, like live in Toronto. That was like this hip music show, but it skewed so much older than much music was like much music was playing like kid bands and stuff that, you know, like I just, I not maybe not kid bands, but just like playing more punk stuff. It felt like. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, someone explained this to me that I, I never put two and two together and you would probably have a better knowledge of this as someone who worked on the other side of the camera, literally, but like so many bands, like, like I said, that soda video, and the other one that I remember seeing all the time was a band from Toronto called tricky woo. Mm -hmm. who had a song montreal they're from montreal okay yes my apologies no no but they, they, great band to bring up i don't think we've ever got to talk about them on the show but so go i love i love that one record and i love that one single let the good times roll which is like a 90 second song that i'm pretty sure anytime much had like a block to fill and they're like oh we're 90 seconds short <laughs> yeah. throw that tricky woo video in there or throw soda by gob in there yeah and that that fills the time time crunch we have, but it also fills the CanCon laws, right? Yep. So absolutely. Um, so like someone explained that to me recently. I was like, oh yeah, it never dawned on me. Like that's why I would see those videos so often. Or like bands like um, uh, the Killjoys. That's another band mm -hmm. that today uh, I hate everyone you know, was. Yeah, today I hate everyone. Right, that's like a two and a half minute song. Right, perfect. Yep. Slide it in there. Right. So there was also a video. I can't remember who it was by, but it was like a band doing like a rip on this is much i guess a little bit later but they were doing a rip on blink 182 trying to spend all that money to make their video but they had like a thousand dollars so they only got to make like a 30 second video and i much music played the shit out of that for the same reasons it was canadian it was short so if you had to fill like a bumper of something you just throw that in there we even on the wedge when i was doing the wedge we would like you know we shit we need one more can con it's like okay let's let's find like you know let's play a punk song let's play snowball let's play you yeah know, like because you just you still have to pat it out but also by the time yep. i was there no one watched videos at the time we're talking about this was our cultural like outpost like there's a reason that i say dbs and anyone that was remotely into cool music back then knows exactly who i'm talking about because they were played on this station that dictated what we were all into or what we all at least knew about and it's funny you mentioned DPS. I actually posted them on Twitter today as my my song of the day, and I was I was expecting uh, a reaction from you, but uh, but uh, this, this will timestamp when this is recorded for sure. By the way, um, but uh, but yeah, one I, one that well, go ahead. No, no, go on. No, I was going to say I stayed up all night last night uh, due to being very sick with food poisoning. So that was the reason I wasn't very active on social media. At all no, today. that's that's fair. That's fair. But you're you're the the world's biggest DBS fan as far as I I'm concerned. So I'm I think I'm up there. Like you know, it's 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 funny. They are a band that I think uh, <laughs> I think that 
uh, they have so many different periods for a band that was yeah, around for such a short time. 100%. They like really went from one end of the spectrum to the other by the end of their career, certainly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I'm not as much of a deep head on the later stuff as like my brother and Chris O'Toole, who I do footnotes with. Yep. Those guys ride all the way through for DBS, whereas I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm like the worst kind of fan that exists. Like, oh, I love your first couple records kind of fan. So. <laughs> Fair enough. But the point you make is, is, is very true. Like um, when you were on the wedge in like the 2010s, like you're quite right. I, I only, I probably got rid of cable in like 2013, mm. but maybe 2012, but I distinctly um, remember like the wedge was appointment viewing for me at that point, but like nothing else on much music was. Um, whereas in the nineties, like Friday night, get home from school, like watch the top 30 countdown. Like that's something I did as a child because of, yeah, the just music video as a, as a medium. And, uh, it was just a way to, you know, hear things for, for better or worse. There was lots of stuff that got played that wasn't great, obviously, but, um, but impactful nonetheless. Yeah. It's so weird. Like watching you know, my kids grow up now and just seeing like the place of music for them, their friends, where it doesn't seem as, you know, and it is all consuming. They listen to music, they love music, but it doesn't seem as all consuming as it was to us where this thing yep. was like, you watch that top 30. So you knew, so you could, you could talk about any genre of music. Like you, you could talk about hip hop, you could talk about dance music because it was all kind of in the mix at that point. That's, that's actually very funny because like I have, like my bandmates will bring up how, um, you know, if there's ever any downtime and we're just sitting around, like I'll just bust out like a random, like nineties riff, usually just to entertain myself, but they're like, you have the most random frame of reference. Or, um, we went on tour to Cuba in 2017 and Cuba is like 25 years behind as far as like culture goes, like, mm-hmm. uh, I should say like North American culture. They have, they certainly have their own culture, yeah, but yeah. So like the like the sound guys at the venues we were playing were like playing like um, they really love Zombie by the Cranberries like that is the biggest song in Cuba. We saw multiple bands cover that song, which is it's an awesome song. And shout out to my friends uh, Dom and Koo, uh, Violence is Forever, who currently use it as their theme music on the indies. So um, it's still it's still a rad song, but. Um, and the other one, I remember we were playing a, a show in Cuba and there was this Bon Jovi song that was like massive in the 90s called, I think, Always or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Oh, and, always. and I'll be and there when the sun. Oh, yeah, I know. The that's song. the one, right? Yeah, I could sing it for you. I wasn't going to. But um, and that came on as house music. And I was just like belting it out, singing along. And everyone else on that tour with me was like, how do you know this dumb 90s? Like everyone's frame of reference for Bon Jovi's the 80s, right? Yeah. But it was like number one on the Much Music Countdown for like an ungodly amount of weeks in 1995. And so, um, so like, yeah, 100% it framed my, uh, a lot of memories, uh, good, good or bad. Um, and just how I kind of connected with music, I guess, as a child and going forward. How'd you get to tour Cuba? Oh man, we could do an entire podcast on that. It was such an insane experience. Yeah. So we, um, like my like little circle, I call us a collective, but that just kind of makes me give like, I kind of want to associate like we're like Nutramilk Hotel or something, but 
um, or the elephant six or whatever it was. So I've got a, a just a group of friends and we kind of like share a practice space and there's multiple bands that all share this space here in Vancouver. And uh, we got acquainted with this like nonprofit group called Solidarity Rocks that brings Canadian bands to Cuba and then sends Cuban bands to Canada. And um, so they had been doing that for a couple of years. And some of my friends had gone to Cuba maybe two, three years prior to when we went. Um, but yeah, they got us like, they got us like artist visas. And we basically had to fly ourselves there. Um, and all the shows are for free because like no one can afford to go to shows in Cuba, right? Yeah, yeah. But we, um, we actually did a really cool thing that I could touch on uh, real quickly, but we basically brought an entire backline with us that we got through fundraising and through donations. We brought like $5,000 worth of gear. We brought a Marshall stack to Cuba, um, which it has to be the most powerful amp on that island, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, we toured the entire island playing like 10 shows, all with like local Cuban, like punk and metal bands. Um, and then we left all the gear there for them well, because awesome. it's so hard for them to get gear. They don't have the money to get gear. The embargo, um, you know, makes things difficult for them to get down there. And yeah, it was crazy experience. Like one of it's easily the coolest thing I've ever done in music and, and one of the coolest things I've ever done just in life in general. So. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think of bands. I know that tour there. I know the Manic Street Preachers played there like, in like early 2000s i think they did a show one-off show or two shows type thing there's been like bigger shows because like we were when we actually were in most of the time we were uh based in a city called sancti spiritus which is right in the dead center in the middle of the island basically okay um but we played havana on our last night there and when we were in havana we were going through kind of some of the more touristy areas of havana and found like shops that were like old bookstores that had like posters like old cuban vintage posters of like movies that would have come out in like the 70s and 80s one of my biggest regrets is not getting there was like a cuban um poster for a clockwork orange which i i, I was just thinking oh this is expensive and it's gonna be a pain in the ass to carry around for the rest of this trip i should have bought it but yeah, um that's so but sick. i distinctly remember seeing posters for like i think the rolling stones maybe played there oh, and wow. i think I think Metallica played there. So, um, oh, wow. I don't think in like, like recently, would that have been like early 2000 or mid 2000? I think it was within the last 10 to 20 years. Okay. Yeah. And I, I could be wrong on that, but I, I remember there being some bigger bands who would have played like a baseball stadium there. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. one thing they do love there. They love baseball. So, um, there's tons of baseball stadiums. Like a lot of the country has some real like economic issues to deal with, but they freaking love baseball. So, yeah, no, I definitely, you know, like there's, I can't even think in the nineties when punk bands were kind of going to different places on just like straight up DIY levels, that was always somewhere that was, I guess, just so hard to get a visa. So it's so awesome getting to go there. Cause like, I know virtually nothing about the punk and metal stuff from Cuba. Not that I know everything it, about everywhere, but there's definitely. There's, yeah, there's, there's a couple like notable bands um, who, um, and like I'm spacing on the name of the one, one main one um we actually played a show with with the bass player from like kind of the the ramones of cuba i guess although oh, awesome. like like not from that same time frame i just mm -hmm. say that because they're kind of the genesis of, mm -hmm. of the punk scene there but um and he's like an older guy now probably in his 50s playing with like 20 year olds and kind of like spreading 
spreading the the message, you know. Um, and that was in a town called Cienfuegos. Um, but yeah, so there is some there, like um, it's definitely a lot um, of like uh, sh- like street punk kind of inspired vibes for sure. Um, one of our guides is a gentleman named William, and uh, he played in a band that's. Uh, I'm spacing out on it, what they're called, but I know they did a full U.S. tour because they played with Agnostic Front in New York because oh, Roger's Cuban. Because Roger is Cuban. Yeah. yeah. And so he really took a liking to them and a shining to them. So, and when we played in Cuba um, every night, there was like three or four bands that would play. And then we did like kind of a Frankenstein of people who played in the, in the earlier sets and we did like a set of like classic punk covers each each night, and oh, I did awesome. I did vocals for that, which is I've I've never seen recording of it. I doubt it's any good, but we we always played Victim and Pain every night, and and that always went over really well because we'd always like introduce it as being like you know an Agnostic Front song, and people would be like super jazzed to hear that because they love Agnostic Front in Cuba. So oh, that's badass. That's awesome. So where'd you gotta go from getting into? Uh you know getting into the punk on mtv or much music sorry where'd you kind of get go from there so you know like it's um i i was just kind of a sponge uh as a kid and so there was a lot of stuff that i loved over the years that is is decidedly like uncool (laughs) in in hindsight i definitely was kind of a late to life like punk kid like going to local punk shows I didn't start doing that until I was like 19 20 years old I was pretty late I didn't go to like a lot of like the Salem Hall shows in North Vancouver or the George Preston Rec Center in Langley where bands like Gob were playing in the 90s um uh, I've told this story before but like my first favorite band which I discovered seeing uh, a poster outside of Sam the Record Man was Aerosmith I like (laughs) absolutely adored Aerosmith as like a 10 year old. Um, I remember seeing a poster for uh, the Get a Grip record, which came out in 1993. Yep. And it was the one that had the cow with the, the Aerosmith, the, the pierced udder <laughs> and the Aerosmith tattoo. And I remember being nine years old and being like, this is the punkest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like Aerosmith, they get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then just being like Aerosmith obsessed as a, as a nine and 10 year old to the point that like, I have like probably like 500 CDs that are just collecting dust uh, in my, my room. And um, like a lot of bands that I have like their full discographies. I don't think there's a band I have more CDs of than Aerosmith. So. <laughs> I saw them on the get a grip tour. I, was- I never saw them live. So my mom refused to take me to see them when I was like nine, 10 years old. Cause she's like, Oh, my mom, you know, she was like pretty progressive. Like she, you know, she was kind of a wannabe hippie. She grew up like being obsessed with um, like Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles and that sort of stuff. And like, she saw Led Zeppelin in the seventies. So she was around that sort of stuff. But like, I think she was concerned that like she would get arrested if she brought her nine-year-old to Sierra Smith <laughs> and there was like people smoking pot or, or, you know, women flashing their, their breasts or whatever. I don't yeah, know. But yeah. so, yeah, there was a lot of shows. I remember begging her to see um, White Zombie playing in like an all ages show in Vancouver when I was like 11. And she was like, 
I'm not taking you to see White Zombie. It's not happening. <laughs> so, so yeah, not uh, a lot of uh, repressed uh, <laughs> uh, angst of not getting to see a lot of bands that uh, I'm sure I would have gotten an, an education as a 10 year old, but it was, it was a lot of radio bands and a lot of bands that would have been more popular on me, much music, but like really diving deeper into punk didn't come until like later on, um, like well into my teenage years. Like I was kind of a fad, uh, you know, new metal and, and, and like even went through an ICP phase as a teenager, which I know you shout out homies as, as the one good ICP song. Yeah. Like zombies, the one good cranberry song homies is the one good ICP song. Okay. You know, like I wonder if, I wonder if those two bands have ever been compared to to one another. Uh, <laughs> I'd also say Grateful Dead with uh, uh, Grateful Dead's got two good songs. Oh, we, well, you you uh, what a touch of gray is that where you're going T- with that? Or? Touch of gray, but also Cream Puff War off the first record is is a jam. I, I know you've referenced that song before because I had to look it up. I never heard it before, so just uh, yeah. So, but yeah, I'm not a Grateful Dead guy either. I do like Touch of Gray though. Yeah, it's, a good song. <laughs> it's, it's their zombie. It's their zombie. It's, and, well, it's the same thing. I would have seen the video on Much Music as a kid because that yep. was like one of the what what other Grateful Dead song has a music video, right? Like, I don't know. And that, that yeah. was a great video. The dog runs away with the bone, you know. The that, that's the one where they all turn into skeletons, yeah, right? Yeah, they yeah, turn yeah, into yeah. skeletons are all playing. Song super catchy. Yeah, that got definitely some much music airplay. Yeah. I, yeah, there was a 100%. fish song people th- said that got so much music airplay, but I do not remember fish. I don't remember that whatsoever. I, I like, I don't, I couldn't even tell you like what the beginnings of fish was. Cause I remember like kind of cursory hearing them like, Oh, like Jerry Garcia died. Here's a band that kind of sounds like them, I guess. But, um, but yeah, like I've, I couldn't tell you a fish song band I've, I've managed to avoid for the most part uh, during my life. Although yeah. I, I do have friends who are like fish obsessive, like travel around the world to see them types. So, yeah, I've got like the uh, a memory of like seeing the one, I guess, which was their big breakthrough record. And it's like some guy's face through like a, a fisheye lens. Yeah, basically. And I remember seeing that in like the Columbia CD catalog. Oh, Columbia House. Yeah, the Columbia House one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but I, I never ordered it. I was always like, yeah, I don't know. speaking of columbia house which i think is a jumping on point for a lot of people like like i mentioned i got a million cds here um and part of that i think i can thank to there was a chain of record like i i I shouldn't even call it a record store it was a record store but it was more than that um there's a chain of stores here in based in vancouver called a and b sound which i don't i don't think you guys had on the east coast oh i don't think so yeah, so like it was based in Vancouver and they did a, a eventually expand to Alberta and maybe Saskatchewan, but like they were like they had a huge selection of music, but they also had like televisions and stereos and and stereo equipment and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they one thing that they did which I found after the fact when I became friends with people who worked in like record stores and distribution and that sort of thing as I got older because A&B Sound always had the best prices when it came to CDs. So, um, you know, like we had HMB here and we had Music World and we had, you know, Sam the Record Man. But I never went to any of those stores uh, because A&B Sound had a better selection and they would sell things under cost as loss leaders to get people in the door 
to buy like televisions and stereos and that sort of stuff. So like so much of my music collection, like I'd see a music video on much music and be like, I like that. I want to buy the CD. And then I'd go to AMB sound and get it for way cheaper than, than I rightfully should have gotten it for. And, uh, and that's how my music collection like grew exponentially as a, as like a teenager with a finite income. Right. So, and then shock of shocks, uh, they went out of business in the 2000s <laughs> as, as uh, you know, streaming and, and MP3s and everything kind of, um, you know, in some ways killed the, you know, those kind of major uh, record stores. It kind of seems like also that was like a precursor to Best Buy and, and Future Shop and all these other places starting to do that a little bit later. 100%. Yeah. Before, before we even had like, I mean, Best Buy was American, right? But yeah. before Best Buy came over and, and bought out Future Shop, um yeah amb sound was doing it on more of like a, a local grassroots vancouver level and they had a location like downtown um on uh seymour street in vancouver um which uh you can see, actually see in the background of the movie rumble in the bronx which i'm obsessed with that movie <laughs> because it it's it takes place in vancouver or uh, in new york but it's obviously filmed in vancouver the mountains, and uh, the mountains in it and, sorry say that again the famous mountains in new york the famous mountains in new york and there's actually a scene that is filmed in newest minster where where i live and and the city that i that i rep so hard so uh, but yeah you can see amb sound in the background of rumble in the bronx um and uh, and yeah there was a massive location downtown that um like later on as i got older like they had like a really good dvd selection as well and they even had a pretty decent vinyl selection at, at periods of time so mm-hmm. yeah it feels like it, it, it's so weird to think about because, you know, everyone talks about now how expensive everything is and, you know, like, you know, but like you think about the fact that at one point you were expected to buy multiple $20 CDs each week to be kind of kept in the know about music. Yep. You know, like it, 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 it's just, it's staggering how much money you had to spend on physical media. I still do, but like, you know, I, I, I still do too, but like, at least I can listen to a song on Spotify and go, yeah, this is awesome. I'm going to buy the album or like, yeah, oh, this is for me, you know? Right. So yeah. no, no, definitely. It's changed so much because, you know, at that time, like, you know, finding cheap CDs, like when UCD stores finally became a thing, I had friends coming over for England from England, just filling suitcases full of CDs, not to, to flip and sell, but just for themselves because these CDs were so much more expensive when they went back home. I remember uh, I went on like a school trip to England and France when I was 16 years old. Yeah. So like CDs were still a thing then. Uh, this is like pre MP3s really be being huge and like wanting to buy like some, like what would be imports over here. And just with like the exchange rate, they were so expensive. They're like, I think I bought one CD while I was over there because again, I was on a finite income and it was like twice as expensive as it would cost to buy a CD here. So, yeah, it, it, it was always like, I always like loved when you go to like HMV and you see the import CD singles that would come in from England yep. because there was this, there was this CD single market. But then when you get over there and you realize like, oh yeah, because a CD is like the equivalent of like, $45, but you can buy a CD single for the equivalent of like $4. So the CD yep. single market was so much more important to them than it, it was, was so, so different for sure. The, that reminds me of, so we briefly had a Virgin mega store here in Vancouver as mm-hmm. well, which we would occasionally like venture into the city to check out all the, the various imports and whatever. And 
this story, like I told this story the other day to a friend, I still find it really funny, but we went uh, with, you know, probably when I'm 15 with uh, my friend and his dad and his dad was really into that band Savage Garden. (laughs) (laughs) And this is when their first album uh, had had come out. Is that the one with the Cherry Cola song on it? Yes, absolutely. That was their that was their first big single. Here. Yeah, uh, over here certainly it was. I don't know about uh, overseas, but and I remember having like um, the Virgin Megastore stocked all sorts of like European and Japanese and whatever like imports, right? Yeah. And so we all buy whatever, and then we're getting on the train back back into the suburbs, and I look over and I see that my friend's dad had bought the Japanese version of the Savage Garden album which like Japan has like rules about like having to have a certain amount of tracks or whatever on an album. Right. So you'd always get like a live version of something and maybe like a B side from a single, they just tack it on to the album on the Japanese versions. Mm -hmm. And so he bought that and it cost him like $37 or something insane in like, you know, 1999 money. And I had to be the one to explain to him this like, Oh, you bought the Japanese version of their album. And he's like, Oh, like I already have their album. I, I spent $37 for like a live song and a B side. And he was so furious. And I, to this day, like it's been 20 years and I still think that's the funniest story, but. So what was your first concert? Like not necessarily punk. My first concert is slightly less cool nowadays because the headliner uh, is recently in in uh, the headlines for for being a decidedly bad person, um, but the first concert I ever went to was in March of 1999, and it was the uh, ill-fated co-headlining Marilyn Manson in Hole tour. Oh, wow. that Hole dropped off the tour like within the first week. I'm pretty sure because they like butted heads so much. But that tour started, I think, in like Spokane, Washington, and then like very shortly thereafter was in Vancouver and yeah. So Marilyn Manson hole and the opener was monster magnet who oh, for my, sick. for my friends, the, this, the, this is another funny thing. This just shows you like perception as, as, as a kid, like my friends and I didn't really like the current Marilyn Manson record that, that he was touring on, um, which is the one that had um, like dope show and um the one where he's kind of in the androgynous kind of uh, of bodysuit thing yeah it's the glammy one it's like the glammy one right we preferred like antichrist superstar yeah and uh so like to him to us like that record was kind of like oh that record's kind of lame and the whole record again that's the one that has um like celebrity skin is the the lead single yeah and again we're sort of like oh like yeah live through this that's kind of a cooler record like we weren't really into the new hole but then my buddy's like oh and monster magnets opening and we're like space lord is the best song i've ever heard we are going to this show (laughs) like (laughs) that was the deciding factor of going to see like this thing and it was the um it was the first mosh pit i was ever in and like I didn't really understand like how things work. So like my friends and I are up close for monster magnet and we're super stoked. And like, it's an opener. So people are just kind of like standing there and like maybe nodding their head along to the, to the radio hits. Yeah. And then whole come on and they opened with violet and 14 year old me was like, not ready for what I was going to experience. I just got like 
thrashed about by like all these much larger individuals than me and i i subsequently got got out of the my very first mosh pit but but yes it was uh it was that tour i still have a lot of fond memories of of that show and and uh regardless of the fact that one of the people there was a, a well, I mean, maybe multiple people are, are horrible people. I don't know, but one in particular. So, yeah, one one is definitely. I think you know. Even it's weird how now that we have to dwell on it, but how much of that stuff when you go back, you're like, oh wow, all this stuff was stuff he was openly bragging about. Like he was yeah. in the media talking about a lot of this terrible. It's behavior. just to see, like, from 20 years ago, like just culture is so different and so and different, yeah so different and and things that were just sort of like well that's life is sort of like oh no that's awful <laughs> like, well like now yeah, it's like it's, at the time i'm sure it played like courtney love was you know an asshole and left you know it was too hard to deal with and left yep. the Marilyn manson tour but like now all these years later i'm like i would like to actually hear the real story about why whole why things didn't work out yeah no yeah. kidding because it, it it probably isn't the the way it played back then. Yep. Um, Monster Magnet though in Vancouver, you know, in the '90s, smoking that that pre two thousand weed thing. No, <laughs> you're not doing that. But that to me is a fantasy show. I was gonna say, it, well, it was in a, it was in a hockey hockey rink, so I don't know how 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 di- ideal it is. But I bought a a Monster Magnet T shirt that night. That I remember they had they had two shirts and like you know similar they had to like scale up to the headliner so it was 35 dollars in 1999 (laughs) money and they had one that said space lord motherfucker on it and i knew for a fact my my mother would never let me wear this shirt so but i i really wanted a monster magnet shirt they had another one that had this just awful gaudy like graphic print on the front of the band like flanked by these like two like bikini models throwing money up in the air and then on the back it had the lyrics to the song power trip that <laughs> i'm never gonna work another day, another in, my day life. in my life yeah i still have i bought that shirt somehow my mom let me wear that um but i still have it to this day. oh like that's so 20, awesome 20 something years later i'll take a picture and send it to you it's it's i i cut off the sleeves it's pretty ratty and faded but it's yeah it's an awesome shirt much in the same way when dbs came to toronto their roadie was selling shirts for his record label which i believe was scooby snacks records that sounds right and on the front it said jesus should have been aborted and i remember (laughs) buying that and just dreading that going in the wash (laughs) it was not mom was not stoked i remember the guy from from dbs's roadie explaining to me why he made this shirt you know and why this thing's cool and i'm like yeah yeah no, that checks out that checks out definitely gonna buy this can't can't look like i'm backing down now from buying this shirt <laughs> similarly it's it's why i i didn't buy an ec fnw t-shirt in in the 90s when i more than anything wanted one so <laughs> so where what was where'd you kind of go from that monster magnet uh show experience it, uh, so like 90s or into the early 2000s it's a lot of like big arena radio shows but like my first three shows are so like you can see the progression happening because it goes from Marilyn Manson with Hole to the following summer I go to see um Corn with openers uh Power Man 5000 and and a very young Papa Roach 
as, yeah. as the opener, uh, very much in my new metal phase, to the following summer going to see Radiohead. So, <laughs> so things, things kind of scaled up as I, as I entered my senior years of high school and I, I was into a little bit more arty stuff. Um, definitely got really into Tool. Uh, um, which in turn, I think really got me into a lot more um, like instrumental music and, and um, like post-rock kind of stuff. Like I think Tool can be like a gateway in, in a couple different directions for people. And mm. I still really ride for um, those first um, like three or four Tool records. Um, I actually like quoted Tool in my senior yearbook like photo where you get to like the, the class uh, the graduation photo, I, I quoted a Tool lyric, um, which is kind of nerdy, but whatever. Um, but yeah, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of that, you know, Tool, Deftones, System of a Down, stuff that like, I think kind of holds up better uh, when it comes to the, like the new metal side of things. Um, and then it wasn't really until um, like my senior year of high school and the two bands that I discovered, and I think it was just because I was I was actually on a wrestling message board, kind of an infamous one now, Death Valley Driver. Oh yeah, which yeah. had like um, you know other kind of sub forums for music and other forms of culture, and hearing um, reading posts about people talking about like '80s punk and hardcore, and seeing names of bands that I'd only like kind of vaguely heard of but never really experienced. Uh, and that was Minor Threat, and that was The Bad Brains. Mm. And it was like, oh, okay, I know these names. Like, where do I start with these bands, right? And like, Minor Threat's got the easy on-ramp. It's just get the whole discography on a CD for 12 bucks. But uh, then it was figuring out, okay, where do I start with The Bad Brains? And I remember seeing a Bad Brains video on Much Music. And in like hindsight, I don't know what song it would have been for, but... There's I remember for not, Eye Against Eye, right? Like I think much music would is, play it occasionally on on loud, maybe. There is a video for Eye Against Eye, and it's pretty good. But like, I feel like I don't know if they would just get random like live clips of stuff and like package it as a video or what. But I distinctly remember not being into it and like being like, "This is the Bad Brains." Like I thought there was some like raging punk band, and like it was something that maybe had more of a reggae vibe to it. I don't know, but Are they also um, that video on Maverick. You know Madonna's label, like at the end. Oh, of the... it might have been something from the from the '90s records. Yeah, because yeah. I'm trying to think like that must have gotten some airplay on much music because I definitely they were covering them a little bit on new music leading up to that show. I remember, or like I just they were definitely there, but like yeah, I remember buying that record myself and being like, "This isn't what I thought it was going I was, to be." Yeah, so I I ended up buying the Roar, the Roar cassette. Or, and and I can die. Those are the first two records I bought, and like those records sound very different from one another. But I I remember liking both of them like equally as being oh these are different, but both are really cool. Hmm. Um, and subsequently, um, you know, getting further and further into their catalogs and and other catalogs. Um, another one that was kind of a big jumping off point was that um that comp that Henry Rollins curated as um of black flag covers to raise money for the west memphis three yeah what was that called um, i remember that thing too i think it was just called rise above oh yeah rise um, above, that was it and here that was kind of my on-ramp to like black flag because like 
I kind of know who Henry Rollins was and I kind of knew about the West Memphis three being like, you know, 18 years old and idealistic and sort of into social justice, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, going off to university and whatever. But uh, and so it was through that that I discovered like, you know, some other some other bands and vocalists that, uh, you know, because they had all sorts of people doing covers on there, like Keith Morris and I think Iggy and. I know Cedric from the Mars Volta and, and at the drive-ins on that record. Um, I know the singer from Poison the Well is on that record because Poison the Well was like, was a big one for me getting into like, what I'll say it's like more modern, like metalcore or like, yeah. you know, stuff with, with harsher vocals. Like <laughs> that was like, because um, them and I know I'm going all over the map now, I realize this, but um still just talking about buying a lot of CDs um, poison the well and one King down were like two bands that I discovered who had harsher vocals, but you can still make out what they were saying and like understand the lyrics. And uh, that's kind of what got me from like, okay, I really like this kind of classic hardcore, like the bad brains and, and minor threat and, and black flag to well, what's hardcore now? Because um, you know, it's 20 years apart and, and there are, some major like fundamental differences between uh what was going on in the now and what you know what was more of a the kind of classics yeah there's like this like well it's almost like there's like two two periods where there's like such a stylistic shift it's so funny because like i've just started organizing like my like my zine collection and i'm you know there's like a, a point where it's like 89 to 91 where it just like shifts and everything gets so like slayer must just becomes like the main reference point for guitar playing. I think yep. everything gets so much slower and more kind of like heavy, heavy, heavy groove oriented too. Yep. Is becomes a yep. thing. And it, it, and it's, but it's weird. Cause like you look at these zines and it's like the style just shifts so suddenly to this new thing. And then it, it happens again. I think in the early two thousands, there's like, there's like almost like a modern hardcore thing where like, bands got super into like drive like jehu and like the hot snakes and that style of guitar and that really hit hardcore in a big way and you hear that in like a bunch of bands where that becomes like a big over you know big influence as well but like yeah like it's interesting how there's like decided like movements within this thing that you know most people just think is noise but most people outside of it are just sort of like well this is it, you know group it all together but yeah it's funny, like so much, you know, there's, I, I hear a lot of discussion now about like so much of the eighties stuff. It, it just seems so like, so far removed from uh, what's happening now. Certainly like you can't find me a band that sounds like minor threat nowadays or the bad brains, maybe the bad brains that they, they still kind of, yeah. and, and certainly cause they crossed over more into more metallic leanings. Right. But, well, but funny, stuff yes. that, yeah. I was just say stuff that would, you know, would be decidedly hardcore in 1984, you know, me might find it more in like the more punk leaning side of things, I guess, but um, it feels kind of underrepresented in, in today's um, hardcore scene. Yeah. It's, it's funny because that came up in relation to talking about career suicide the other day and Chris O'Toole's and I were talking about how there's no one doing that style of eighties hardcore anymore right now. No, there's, you know, which is, but I guess it's because there was like a saturation point where 
in the mid 2000s or like the 2010s era early 2010s i guess there was just so many bands that were doing it like spot on perfect you know uh representations of the genre that's true that like that's definitely kind of like the probably the the breaking point and honestly like one of my favorite points in music was really discovering labels like Katorga Works and um, like Iron Long and kind of the more underground kind of hardcore and punk leaning labels going to festivals like Chaos and Tejas Mm -hmm. and seeing stuff like that. And yeah, you would still get bands that leaned in that world um, playing those kind of festivals. So I actually once I punished you. I, we've met multiple times, but before you knew who I was, I was just some <laughs> kid at your shows. But I definitely punished you at a chaos and chaos, and, and I remember you being very, very polite and had, and making time for me. So, was this the one where he played uh, 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 outdoors? It was like kind of like a you guys played at, at the Mohawk outdoors, yeah, opening for Dillinger Four. That's right. I do. You know, it's so weird. There's like, uh, like there's just something about Texas. You know, yep. and it, it's actually like kind of now I used to bring this up jokingly and now I bring it up kind of like, I don't know, tragically, but uh, it was like, it's like the hardest partying scene I ever experienced, you know, like, and in Texas, it's a huge state, but I mean, like all these people were interconnected and I'd go d- down there and I would get fucked up. And I remember I have so few memories of that uh chaos and chaos it's wild and i remember i ran into beave from urban blight and i just thought he had i was just i did i was out of it i remember afterwards he came up to me and he's like dude you were fucked up and it was just like you go down there and, and the party would be just so heavy so quick <laughs> that I, I i mean i distinctly remember traveling with friend like you know uh i i i am am and continue to be straight edge and traveling with friends of mine who weren't who like, you know, those shows would run late, you know, you'd get back yeah. to the hotel at like three, three in the morning sometimes. And some of the people I travel with, like, they'd be back at seven or eight in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so. yeah. It was the first place I saw punks do cocaine. Yeah. Was at a punk show in Texas. And like, uh, and it was so, I'd seen people do cocaine before, but it would be like kind of indie shit. And it was like really rare to see that happen in a show. Yeah. But I remember being like a heart fucked up was playing a show and there's someone doing blow there. And I was just like, what the fuck? Punk's doing cocaine. That's crazy. Fast forward a couple years and it was like, oh shit, that's, 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 that's commonplace now. Yeah, that's, that's, it, that's true. And it was commonplace too. I think in the early or the late seventies into the early eighties, like the first wave of punk. Yep. But to watch it kind of come back was, but that was the party in Texas. It was a very very hard party you know and yeah I, as you as you said those shows though at chaos and chaos like hats off to timmy the lineups on those things are fucking ridiculous to look at i it go like i only went three times i went to the last three and honestly i owe a lot of like you know some of some genres and and uh and labels and bands that i love like dearly to this day is because I discovered like every year uh, I'd be like, this is the lineup for chaos. And it'd be like, I love all these bands. I'm not familiar with some of these bands, but I'm going to familiarize myself before I go down. 
And like, that's how I became acquainted with a lot of uh, the flying nun bands because he would yeah. bring them over. And like, I saw the clean, I saw the bats and, um, and I know you, you ride hard for that, that yep. scene that label. and, and uh, yeah, I saw both like still to this day. Um, the, I, I say this is the best show I've ever seen. And it's, you know, I don't have children and I've, and, uh, and I've never been married. So I can safely say that I, uh, this is still the, the, the best day of my life <laughs> um, was seeing Royal Headache open for the clean at Chaos and Tejas and just being just crammed in with all these just like sweaty people outside in the Texas heat and singing along to every single word of Royal Headache set and like just people stage diving nonstop. And it not only is it like, you know, my favorite, probably my favorite show or set I've ever seen, but just like one of the, the greatest memories I have of being there with, with my best friend, Tim, uh, uh, who now lives in Montreal, but uh, was living in Vancouver at the time. And, uh, and yeah, so th those festivals, I've got so many amazing memories of seeing some just great bands there. Yeah, it was Chaos and Chaos and... Uh, I guess just after they start doing that, that's when um, Fun 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 Fest really revs up and gets going. Yeah. But like some of those, yeah, like my best memories of my life were uh, in Austin. Like I love that city so much. And and just to, to circle back to me punishing you, I remember uh, having seen you guys live a few times um, or more than a few times, I guess, at this point. And, you know, you always have the time of day for people usually at when the set's over. Lots of people want to, you know, because you're you're the front man, you're, you know, you're the. <laughs> and you, you definitely are more gregarious than your bandmates. Yes, Deb, I, would um, say, I would say that's probably the first reason. <laughs> probably. They're, 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 they're better about packing up their shit and getting the hell out of there. But yeah. um, So you're surrounded by people who are telling you how great the set is and whatever, whatever. And then I came up to you and, I, and it was shortly after the reboot of The Wedge had, had started. And so I mentioned that I was a big fan and, and I was so stoked that Much Music decided to bring that show back. And I remember you like distinctly like turning to like 10 other people who are waiting to talk to you being like, all right, guys, like hold off for a second. This guy's from Canada. Like I got, <laughs> I got the time of day for my friend here. So, and, and we just BS about the wedge for a bit. So. Oh, that's awesome. You're one of the very few that loved it, that watched it. <laughs> I'm sure no one watched it, which is why it went away. But... It was, it was actually, it's weird to think about now, especially doing turn out of punk where, you know, these come out and, and do better numbers than the wedge does did yeah. you know but some days we'd carry the day with 2300 people like yeah. they're just like 2300 people would watch us at 6 a.m and that would be the best rating it would pull all day maybe until like the movie at prime time which for some yeah. reason people would tune in and watch wayne's world for the 12 millionth time or something <laughs> but like and it so it's wild to think about how just the perception of how big this thing is and then when you're inside it you're like wow it's way smaller like it's not it that is, big yeah yeah it's like the wizard is behind the curtain just like pay attention no attention to the man behind the curtain like it, the, when you get in there and you realize like wow the people that were deciding where we went culturally as young people it's like basically like four or five people and there's no rhyme or reason to what winds up on the charts it's not like they were looking at sales figures it was like i don't like i don't even know what worked back then i'm like not you know i'm not accusing anyone of taking payola but like shit would show up and you'd be like where the hell is this from because it's not from sales figures it's not from requests they would sometimes say it was requests but i don't remember seeing a lot of requests coming in for some <laughs> of this stuff. 
<laughs> when I was there. It's it's yeah, it's really it's somehow media is more honest now, it feels in a way, even though it is very deceptive now, obviously. Yeah, I think there's just a lot more transparency because um, you know, like there's so much more access to everything and and you know, everyone on both sides, you know, fans and and artists alike are, you know offering up so much more of their of their lives and 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 just everything's in the hand you know in the palm of your hand too right so yeah yeah that's why you know like it doesn't shock me that episodes of your podcast do better than episodes of the wedge did because how hard is it to you know plunk in your headphones and go for a walk or go to work or do whatever right like we have access to literally whatever we want at all times nowadays yeah yeah there was like it, it's funny because like I was talking to uh, Tim Heidecker about the idea that like, you know, because like, I don't think he's familiar with much music, but a much music like, you know, it's, it's it's some of the worst TV ever made at times. Yeah. But the amount of people that were involved in making that bad TV <laughs> is staggering, you know, yeah. and I just don't think we live in a time when people are, you know, there's still terrible content coming out, but it now feels like it's like, you know, a handful of people producing it whereas we had teams producing terrible yep. content yep. At, at one point and now it feels like that's it's just shifted so much like you're saying it's like it, it it's it's now in your in the palm of your hand so people don't necessarily want superstars anymore they want accessible stars or stars that feel closer at hand in, in yep. a way yep honestly i think that that has benefited me uh in um you know getting my name out there and getting a lot of the opportunities that I did is because I am so accessible to a certain type of fan this is mm. more on the wrestling end of things obviously right but um and just you know I you know obviously some people still want some form of superstardom or glamour or or whatever right but for some people, they'd rather have someone who's like a lot more earnest and realistic and like, that's who they want to support. And that's, you know, that's benefited me that I have way more support than I could ever imagine. And, you know, I've gotten to travel the world and do something that I'm, I'm passionate about and that I love um, because of uh, the age that we live in, because that yeah. wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened even 10 years ago. So yeah. I think it happened with music first, you know, yes. like this idea of like, like a, a micro career like to not to put it blunt like fucked up what we have is a micro career like the idea that like in another time period we would have been able to only exist on like one level as a band but because of the time we were at technology being what it was and, and media being what it was we were able to almost like crowdsource uh, a, a international fan base because we had access to people all over the world at once you know and yep. i feel that's what wrestling feels like now where that that like the idea of like the powers in the hands of the performer in a way that it wasn't in other eras for sure one that's 100 the case so it's interesting going to japan where it feels like it felt like when i was there everything was five years ahead and now being back here now it's like oh yeah it was five years ahead like the idea of idol culture and how everything's kind of shifted in north america to more of an idol culture like the idea that like you, you find the star that that's right for you or you find the person that you want to like support and look up to or, or patronize in, in, yep. in some way, you know, like that's right for you as a person. Yeah. I, um, 
some of us have never been to, to Japan, but uh, well, I only uh, got to. Go, I just go through scamming different, you know, like I'll play. Sure, I'll play your festival, or sure, I'll, I'll host a wrestling show. Anything to go to Japan, whatever you need me to yeah, do. Yeah, that's you know, it's funny because I uh, I remember like graduating high school, and that was like next year I'm going to Japan. That was that was like the goal, and uh, it's been 20 years, and I still haven't gone. So one of these days I will get there. I will get there, but. It's it is definitely the one place I've been where I'm like, yeah, I could never smoke weed again and live here. I'd be totally fine with that. Like everywhere yeah. else I go, I'd be like, yeah, but I'd still want weed. But there, I'm like, nah, I don't need weed here. I'm fine. I, I'm I'm totally cool. That's good because it's pretty hard to come by there. <laughs> yeah, I think both musicians and wrestlers have found out that bringing your own weed to Japan is a surefire way to get thrown in jail. It's a good way to never come back to Japan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unless you're Paul McCartney, because he eventually got back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who the, I mean, I guess like if someone like Ric Flair or so, I don't know who the wrestling equivalent to the Beatles is, but. Um, yeah, like, I don't know who it would be like. Uh, <laughs> you'd have to be a big star, I think, probably. Some, yeah, yeah. And honestly, it'd have to be someone who was bigger there than. Um, yeah, like it, someone who was would have been like a huge gaijin, like Stan Hansen yeah, or Bruce yeah. Brody or yeah. Uh, um, yeah, or the Destroyer or someone. Yeah, for sure. But back then, they could just buy mushrooms legally, so you'd be tripping on mushrooms all the time. You don't need weed. I I distinctly remember, like I I was um, I trained briefly with uh, an MMA fighter when I, I you know I occasionally do some like drop in like jujitsu and MMA classes. And there was someone uh, out here in Vancouver, I'm, I'm not going to say a name, but who fought for pride over in Japan. And we saw his, he showed us his contract for pride. And literally the, the only things that were banned, if you were fighting for pride uh, at a certain period was no marijuana and no methamphetamines yeah. and everything else. <laughs> go for table, it. Go, go for wild. It. <laughs> Yeah, I could see that. I definitely think there were a lot of guys in Pride that were not being tested for other substances. No, yeah, not to, to say the least, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's probably one of the most Sweden too. I've got I got friends that were they played a venue and they were smoking weed in the back room and they were they didn't get like, hey, can you guys stop? Blah blah. They got, hey, we're gonna call the cops on you guys if we catch wow. you do this again. We're gonna call the cops on you guys and get you thrown in jail. That's crazy. Yeah. They want to sacrifice the show because they hated weed that much. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 I can see, I can see like after the show calling the cops on them, but before the show, geez, that's ruthless. That is that's, ruthless. They take it seriously there. Very much. So where'd you kind of go in terms of like, how'd you kind of get into more DIY type shows and music? Um, honestly, it was, it was, um, I owe a lot of it to, um, one of my best friends, a guy named Shane, who, um, he got really into hate breed and I don't know where that came from. I do remember <laughs> them playing, uh, the video for, um, oh, what's that song off of satisfaction is the death of desire. Occasionally you'd see it on like louder. Loud, or, yeah. They would play it on loud. Yeah. And so. A buddy of mine got uh, really into Hatebreed and saw them play out here at the Croatian Cultural Center in Vancouver. And the opener was a local band called Blue Monday mm. and who 
put out a record on on Bridge Nine, and who I saw lots of times, and uh, and and you know, um, friends with with some of the guys who played in that band, um, and so he started going to local hardcore shows, and so one day he said, "Oh, this is like a bigger show. You should come check it out." And it was Blue Monday playing with um, Comeback Kid and Figure Four when they were still around yeah and that was at a, a venue in vancouver called the mesa luna which was like a like a salsa like dance club at night but they would do like hardcore matinees in the afternoon and uh i subsequently saw some really cool shows there like i saw um converge play there with terror and cursed um the following year and i remember like the show had to be done by like six o'clock because like salsa dancing night was was going on afterwards and and all the bands being kind of bummed out that they were playing in in the daylight hours but um but yeah it was seeing it was seeing comeback kid and, and honestly that that was a big band that got me into uh modern hardcore in in the early to mid 2000s because they played out here a lot in vancouver even though they're from winnipeg and um and then it just kind of was off to the races like going to see local bands, Blue Monday and Go It Alone. And then whenever like a touring band would come through, that's how I first discovered Bane. That's how I first discovered Fucked Up was, you know, like uh, hearing um, Hidden World because my friend, my friend Citrus was booking you guys to, to fly out for a weekend of shows, yeah. Um, yeah. which I subsequently went to all three of those shows because I was like just a, just a sponge i wanting wanting to see everything and like the last one that we're that last one of that weird uh rec center or community center yes so the the first <laughs> night was at the was in the small room at the croatian cultural center in east yeah. van where you guys played with transmitters dagger and uh dagger mouth shout out to to kenny lush yeah. and uh and you played with a band called dead sure who um were kind of like a post-hardcore band from here in vancouver and little did I know at the time that two two of the members of that band would go on to form another band called Damages that I would become obsessed with post-hardcore band who sounded a lot like um oh what's that band I'm um Ottawa like post-hardcore in the late 90s um through Penny Opera or uh why am I having a brain fart Shotmaker Shotmaker okay yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely influenced by Shotmaker and I used to go just travel around to see that band wherever they would play to the point that like, I basically just willed myself into their lives as, as their friend. And now I, I play in a couple of bands with those guys and that's who I went to, to Cuba was uh, with. Um, so yeah, Hyg and Andrew, who are my buddies now, they played in Denture who opened for Fucked Up on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next night you guys played with the transmitters again and the Riff Randalls, I'm pretty sure uh at a at a bar in east van and then the following evening you played at the cloverdale uh senior center in in surrey bc and and i remember uh after the show which was not a great show by any means and i'm pretty sure that was did you guys get stuck in an elevator that day that was the day yeah we got in the we were play fighting in the elevator and got stuck in the elevator for like three hours yeah i remember hearing that story and i remember seeing seeing you there's like a 7-eleven across the street from that uh from that rec center and seeing you in the 7-eleven after the show being like 
I should go say hi to Damien. Like I saw his band three times this weekend and like how, you know, just being this optimistic, idealistic kid, I mean, it was in my twenties, but, and then kind of seeing you over on the other side of the Seven Eleven, like, I think I should leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely in a bad mood that day. I quit yeah. fucked up. That's like, I think the first time I quit fucked up, there's been a few times, but that was like, yeah. I threw a Slurpee at Josh and told him uh, I was quitting the band. It was not. So like a, that, you, so you were getting the the Slurpee at Seven Eleven. That's I was the Slurpee witnessed. I got. I was witness to like that's like the equivalent of well, I mean, if you guys had like actually you know broken up, that's like uh, Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated to start World War One, right? That's <laughs> I think I don't know. Maybe there's an economy of scale issue there, but yeah, no, it definitely was a a a big moment. I remember. I, once again, like I, I don't have a lot of memories of that tour because yep. um, I was put on an anti-anxiety pill and I have really yep. weird fog from that tour still. Like, I don't remember meeting Nardwar when we played there, which I did because we did an interview with him. And uh, I don't remember a lot, but I do remember throwing the Slurpee at Josh. That has definitely burned into my memory forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that was kind of it that was you know that was the setting off point and then like for the rest of the mid 2000s like wrestling really wasn't a big part of my life at that point and it was like all in on on hardcore and like my like flying to new jersey to go to hellfest which subsequently was canceled that was the one that ended up not happening um but like i still got to see a bunch of cool shows that week and i saw lifetime for the first time i saw 108 for the first time i saw coalesce for the first time so um yeah i was just like all in i was just ride or die for uh, just sucking it all in and and experiencing it all so it kind of feels like there was a you know like the the, the blue monday period like that was like a and go it alone that was like a, a period where it kind of swelled up again the hardcore scene in vancouver like it feels like it kind of like ebbs and flows as an outsider Ab- looking Ab- absolutely and and like the scene here is very connected to seattle so like there's bands down there like shook ones was a big band for me mm-hmm. from from bellingham washington just across the border um sinking ships also from seattle so mm-hmm. like these are bands that i you know every weekend there was like a show with one of these bands either in vancouver or bellingham or seattle or or you know, somewhere in that kind of area. And like my friends and I were, were going to most of them. So. Yeah. Like it feels, it, and then I guess like it kind of transitions into that. Uh, what was it called? Like the no fun scene. Uh, no fun, no fun city. No yeah. fun city scene. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the name of the, the documentary. That's mm-hmm. all about, um, uh, you know, the venue. Uh, I don't know. Crisis is too strong of a word, but venue issue in Vancouver which is, is always an issue here. I don't know if, if other cities uh, experience the same thing, but DIY venues like just can't manage to, um, to stick around here. Like, and, and a lot of it has to do with, with government and um, there's no real support system for it. You know, there was, um, I'm trying to think of some, you know, uh, one of the first shows I ever played uh, was in a, a really cool record store called the Zoo Shop in East Van that would do shows and subsequently got, um, you know, red taped to death by, by the city and um, by the fire marshal. Um, and so, yeah, that's um, like, I remember seeing uh, career suicide playing with 
um, regulations from Sweden mm. and they played at a, a skate shop in East Van called The Sweatshop that was around for years doing parkour shows. I saw Modern Love's War play there once and it was an unreal set. Um, but that career suicide and regulation show got like busted by the cops and, and neither band got to play until uh, the promoter called up one of the bars in East Vancouver and said, hey, I've got a full bill. Can we tack it on to whatever you have going on tonight? And the entire show convoyed to East Van to Pub 340, which is where that uh, aforementioned fucked up show was from from probably earlier that year, actually. I think both shows were in 2007. Um, and yeah, seeing Career Suicide and Regulations play was unreal, but like it almost didn't happen because there's so much drama and BS when it comes to venues in this city. It's, it's um, you know, another one that anytime you get... Um, you know, we'd have local venues that would kind of become regular spots. There was a place called Video In Studios, then another place called The Casa, which was just around the corner. And, you know, you'd maybe have a venue for maybe a year, sometimes 18 months, and then something would happen and it'd be like, oh, we don't want hardcore shows here anymore. Or the city would say, you need to jump through all these hoops if you're going to have live music in these venues. So it's it's a bomber man it, and and it still happens to this day so this might be me putting too much weight on it but i always wondered if that's kind of a chilling effect of the squamish five stuff and the fact that like you had this sort of like really political thing come out of people that were involved in the punk hardcore scene if that was something cops were actively trying to make sure it didn't happen because like it does feel like you know until that no fun city stuff happens where there's like a huge explosion like there's almost like not a lot of stuff coming out of there compared to that first wave of punk which is just insane it's very possible yeah i don't know a ton of about the history of that if i'm being honest um but that wouldn't shock me if if everything is you know thought out and pre premeditated to a certain degree so yeah like i just wonder like youth culture wise show wise because like that it's wild when you think back to that scene like you've got obviously white lung would go on and do you know a lot of things as a band but like you also have what's that country guy's name uh who was in new sensei uh, oh who's huge now oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um oh god why are we yeah he's massive um and fix that can, in the intro <laughs> i can i can <laughs> I can see yeah, he wears the thing on the face and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this is this is bad. We should know this. Yeah, and, and Japan droids and stuff coming out of that too. Yeah, it feels like that was like a a real like explosion in popular culture, in or in, in I guess music culture in that city. Yeah, I, I certainly I think so. Yeah, now those you know those bands became you know, pitchfork bands or they play yeah. Japan droids at, at Vancouver Canucks games, you know, like, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was like, uh, you know, like it, it had a lasting effect and it feels like it, there's a big gulf between all these huge explosions that happen, you know, like for, for how, how cool of a city it is. So like, it must be the venue issue. That's there's nowhere to play. There's nowhere for this stuff to grow. Doesn't help. Certainly. I, I mean, there's always going to be something people discover things like there's uh, I mean, there's a spot in East Van called the, the Black Lab now that has been, you know, been able to run shows there for quite some time. And and it's not huge, but like the few times that I've I've promoted shows and I've had touring bands reach out to me, you know, I've run it there because it's a 
relatively accessible spot and uh and you know works for the kind of music that we're doing so venues are always going to exist um but uh but yeah why it has to be such a struggle i don't know so how'd you get back into the wrestling stuff <sighs> so i mean my wrestling story is is definitely different from most people in in the current kind of climate of independent wrestling I, uh, I was a backyarder famously, uh, if anyone's paid attention to me. Uh, and then my friends and I got trained back in the early 2000s and local wrestling at the time really wasn't scratching the itch like I hoped it would. Like this is kind of as um, we got the dawn of um, independent wrestling in the early 2000s, um, the big independent boom, Ring of Honor, CZW, IWA Mid-South, Jersey All-Pro. These are all promotions that, you know, we would watch on, on VHS tapes that we'd, we'd trade away for or buy. Um, uh, a lot of it, honestly, is owed to Smartmark Video, which is now, uh, you know, in collaboration with IWTV, which I think is, uh, you know, a big reason for why I'm, I'm here too, but that, that's a whole other story. Um, and so my friends and I were watching these, these early 2000s indies wanting to do what we were seeing uh, on big Ring of Honor shows, like that style of wrestling. And there really wasn't a place for it in early 2000s in Vancouver. It was very much an old school kind of territorial vibe. Keep it simple, um, you know, grab a headlock and, and learn how to cut a promo and, and work, the, work the marks, kid, that sort of thing. Um, and it really didn't appeal to me and my friends. And so we kept doing our backyarding thing. So I was, you know, backyarding and just kind of having fun with my friends and doing it on a really like small scale, kind of right in uh, correlation with me going to a lot of hardcore shows. That would be, that wouldn't be an unusual, uh, you know, Saturday for me would be backyarding with my friends on a Saturday afternoon and then going into the city to go to a, a hardcore show at night. Um, and it wasn't until quite a few years later that some friends of mine who are running a, a very DIY kind of punk uh, ethos um, wrestling promotion in Seattle called three, two, one battle. They um, it, you know, it's friends that I knew through backyarding who, who reached out to me and said, Hey, we got this cool thing going on. Um, you know, would you want to come down to Seattle and work some of these shows? And it started as just like a once a month going down, not making any money, not even getting paid gas money, but just having fun, hanging out with my friends, getting to wrestle in front of like small, but like rabid crowds, like a hundred people, maybe 125 people who were just really enjoying the moment and, and, would react to the, just the smallest things. They just wanted to be there and have fun. And it was just such a cool um, environment that just really helped cultivate, you know, my passion for, for wrestling again and for wrestling in front of an audience, which is not something I'd ever really been passionate about. I remember distinctly, you know, starting off being like, this is cool, but like I'm wrestling for myself and I'm going to have the kind of matches that I would like to see. And I mean, there's still some truth to that nowadays. Like first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tortured artist who wrestles for his own passions and for his own interests. But now, um, 
having that kind of connection to, to a fan base and to an audience, it really grew out of, of wrestling in Seattle and, and how that kind of just cultivated and, and now is such a, an important and just crazy part of my life that I, I can imagine, you know, people from all over the world being so passionate about me and what I do and, and having that connection to people is, is insane. Like it's, yeah, I, I couldn't imagine ever that ever existing. And, and so much of that and, and the opportunities came from just plucking away, working in front of the, the same kind of passionate fan base in Seattle month in month, month out. It's 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 such a different like it's all it's like going to a concert, you know, like the difference between going to a concert and going to a show. I think it's like going to like an uh, arena wrestling event versus seeing wrestling in like a bar or in a small community center or something like that, where the audience is just so much more in it, you know, and like everyone's interacting with each other and, you know, the wrestlers are, 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 are going off the audience, you know, and it feels like it's a lot more immersive, you know, and that's, that's where I was kind of like, when I experienced that for the first time, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is what I wanted. This makes more sense. Yeah. And, I, I tell promoters and, and my peers, anyone who asks, or even those who don't ask, and I just talk at them, um, that I consider myself a small room wrestler. Mm. And I'm like, that's where I, I really want to craft my, uh, my trade and, and become an expert at it, you know? And, and um, not only is it so, you know, such an analog to, to seeing shows in a small room, like, like you said, that's, 100 that's a one-to-one that's that's a perfect analog um but like i just love you know in, in some ways that you you can hear what people are saying and you can you yes you can react over you know in, in a big big room you hear cheers you hear booze you react accordingly um you know whatever in a small room you can hear specific things that people are saying and like not just that one loudmouth guy in the front row, but like you can hear conversations going on and you can almost like play off of that or, you know, so much of my growth as a performer was, was getting to be a heel in Seattle and, and interact with people. Uh, and, and, you know, like almost have conversations with people in the middle of things because you're so close uh, to the fans. And, and now as someone who really, uh, I don't know if I specify in, but like, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is, is technical wrestling and it's all about small details and it's all about um, a lot of thought goes into um, how I put my matches together and, and how I kind of craft things. And a lot of it is for the people in the front row will pick up on this and hopefully the camera picks up on this, but like, the people in the back room aren't necessarily going to pick up on this. And that's why it works so much better in a, in a small room, because I, I want people when I was, when I was young and I was someone who was really, you know, gaining an interest in, in independent wrestling and, and technical wrestling. I loved being in the front row and, and seeing guys, you know, working for holds and like see the, the counters coming two steps ahead, you know, because, they knew what they were doing and, and slowly, but surely I was picking up on, okay, if he does this, he can do this. And, Oh, that's what, exactly what he's doing. And, you know, I want to be on the other side of that equation now, you know, like it's probably why I've never thought about it until I said it out loud just now, but 
maybe that's that's where that that passion came from was was being you know on the other side uh, of the ropes and and now not only do i have a passion for it but i i have a, a particularly strong affinity uh and skill set when it comes to that sort of thing and uh and i want to keep that going at, for future generations i guess yeah i think i i think it was on colt cabana's podcast one time i think when he had robbie brookside on he talked about the idea of a small room wrestler yeah the idea that it's like a completely different skill set and it's it's like it's like playing concerts and playing shows you know like a band that's like only used to playing giant stadiums coming in and playing a diy space yeah it's not going to go over in the same way like because their their gestures are too big they don't know how to work that kind of like intimate kind of environment where to do a big gesture comes off corny like to see someone yes. who's used to doing stadium wrestling come in and do a smaller room, the stuff they're doing doesn't play for those audiences. No. It's very different. Yeah. It's very, very different. Now I'm trying to picture like, I don't know why, but the first thing that came to my mind was like ACDC playing in someone's basement yeah. and just like, <laughs> well, they're the one real. band that could probably pull it off. They're like, okay. there's that story about them showing up at CBGB's and yep. just blowing everyone away. Like they just came out and just like, destroyed the room what what era of acdc are we talking about 70 something but so bon I, scott bon scott still. bon scott yeah definitely was yeah. still there and and stuff like that but it was a you know like they were they, and it's funny in australia they were kind of like weirdly marketed as a punk band for a hot second yeah and and stuff like that so they kind of kind of you know i feel like they're one of those bands that even a day if you got them with Axl Rose, maybe it wouldn't work as well. But like, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's like, hey, I need you to get my giant wheelchair thing down the stairs so I can perform in this thing. Uh, sir, this is a basement venue. I don't think it probably can... take up half the basement. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't know if we can get this in there down here today, sir. Um, but yeah, no, it does feel like it, it's so similar to these ideas of like being a band that does it for different reasons than bands that are you know or not even different reasons but it's a different approach to things when you're like doing it and seeing the people's faces you know when you're connecting with an audience on that level and and typically like if you're on that smaller of a scale like you're talking obviously less money and more I mean, this isn't always the case. So I'm not trying to say that anyone who's doing it for the money isn't passionate about it, but it, it feels like you're, you're really, you got to be passionate and, and care about what you're doing. Yeah. If, if you're willing to really, um, you know, ply your, play your craft in front of uh, those kind of audiences, you know? Well, no, exactly. Like, and it does, you're talking earlier about going to Cuba, you know, I was thinking yeah. back to fucked up when we would do things just cause it was fun you know be like yeah. oh fuck let's go play china for two weeks we're not we're gonna lose money but it's like we're china we're touring china versus now where it's like yeah but like i don't know if we can afford to do it because it becomes different when it becomes a job about the money yeah yeah about the job type thing that's honestly like i've had people ask me about um you know like i i've wrestled someone you know who has um made wrestling their career um, for the last 20 years, uh, last weekend. And that was, a a really cool experience finally getting to wrestle that person. Um, but we, you know, we had the conversation about doing this 
for a living versus doing it for passion. And, you know, part of me wishes that even if I did it for a year, just to say, I, you know, I rested professionally, that was my job. That was my source of income for a year. But I fear that I would have to um, go against some of my ethics and probably take some gigs that aren't all that um, fulfilling uh, for my, yeah. you know, spiritually and uh, professionally, you know, like uh, there's definitely times where you, you work places and people are like, Hey, this is the match we booked you in. And it's like, you are more excited about this than I am, but you are paying me to be here. So here I am, I'm going to do my best to, to turn this into something that I, I can be passionate about, but it's not always successful. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you really got to grit your teeth to be like, okay, we're doing this. Right. Which I'm sure, you know, bands, you know, they have that time where they're like, oh no, we're, we're a DIY band, but like there are opportunities that are pretty hard to, to pass up at times, you know? So um, yeah. like Red Bull and Scion and that moment. Scion was the bands... big one I was going to bring up actually. Yeah. Red Bull, Scion, uh, fuck, I'm trying to remember in case there were a bunch of companies that, that entered and all of a sudden it was like, you know, hey, hey, here's, here's X number of dollars, thousands of dollars to put on a show and you can make it free and every band's yeah. going to get paid way more than they get paid normally. And yeah. you're like, well, maybe it's not selling out, you know, and it's interesting now looking back on a lot of decisions where the times that you do say no and yeah. being like, did that really change things you know and like where like are there things that now i regret saying no to but you know you're still trying to navigate that thing but then once it becomes a job you start saying no a lot less to yep. stuff yep i'm i'm very uh thankful that i've been able to to say no to things that i i don't want to do and uh and i don't have too many regrets at this point but um but it, it's the thought crosses my mind all the time. Like, man, I I'd love to give it a shot, but I don't know if I would enjoy it as much if, uh, if I was on uh, that, that other side of the spectrum. So it seems like now with the means of production in the hands of the artist and wrestling, like they are that sort of, you know, like existence is closer at hand. Like I think back to like, going even to the first indie shows that I was going to in the early 2000s like my gosh it would have been a hard go to try and be a professional independent wrestler back then like no one even had merch no yeah the the the, the kind of the rise of of merchandising uh certainly helps the rise of uh just how small the world is now you know and just like literally you know so many shows are live streamed now, or if yeah. not live streamed, they're, you know, they're up on a couple day delay and, you know, you can spend $10 to watch more wrestling than you could ever watch in, in a month's time. Um, and I'm not even talking about the WWE network, you know, there's multiple independent networks out there that are, are that cheap that they're, they're less than what the cost of buying a single VHS tape was when I was a 17 year old getting into watching independent wrestling, like yeah. it's crazy how accessible things are and how beneficial that's been to, to wrestlers, to getting their name out there, getting to work um, more places, getting to, you know, have more take home at the end of the day, when it comes to, you know, there's been like some big examples of shows I've worked or tours that I've worked where 
I make exponentially more money from merchandise than I do from the actual uh, matches. Like that's not always the case, but almost always the case. And so, um, you know, the fact that um, those opportunities are out there, um, yeah, have definitely made things easier. The other thing that's difficult though is being um, uh, Canadian, honestly. Like, yeah. yes, the Pacific Northwest has definitely been a hindrance to me being so far removed from the rest of North America, but not only just being in the Pacific Northwest, but specifically being uh, in on the Canadian side of that. Um, like I've been reaching out, you know, I've been talking to promoters in Ontario. I, I've only ever wrestled in Ontario the one time. Uh, and that was SummerSlam weekend back in 2019. Um, but it's, it's just so expensive traveling within this country that like promoters don't want to use wrestlers from other parts of the country, uh, even though there's so much amazing talent just within Canada, but it's cheaper for someone in Ontario to bring up 10 wrestlers from the States than it would be to fly me in from Vancouver, you know? So, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's like, well, I guess similar to music once again, you know, it's like yep. one of those things where it, it just, it became, and that's why I think for fucked up, we started touring, the east coast uh so much before we ever made it out west because it was like well we could tour canada but th there's no cost effective way to do that as a nope. as like a a person no nope. you know it's, it's nope. so, yeah yeah it's uh the the one nice thing about being a pro wrestler it's it's like being uh like an edm artist yeah, or DJ, like a like yeah. a sound clown rapper or something like you hear about like Skrillex putting a friggin' uh, laptop in a backpack and getting on a plane and making $50,000 or whatever, some exorbitant amount of money, you know, whereas <laughs> like, I don't have to, I don't need to pack everything into uh, you know, a van or, or into a trailer. I can fit everything in a, into a backpack and a carry on luckily. So. Yeah. No. And I think that's the, uh, that's the big difference is the fact that it is, it's a lot more solitary too, for better or for worse. Yep. Yep. You know, like, I think, uh, you know, a lot of these adventures that you wind up having have to be solo experiences because like you can't necessarily get booked with your, unless you're, you're in a tag team. And, and that, that poses its own issues too, honestly, because it's a lot harder to be like, Hey, we're this great tag team, but that's two flights. That's two payoffs. Yeah. That's yeah. So the one nice thing I, I will say is that, uh, and more so, you know, I don't have the same kind of experience in music because I've never really toured on a professional level. Um, and I'm sure it exists. Um, it, maybe only more so when you when you comes to like big kind of festivals. But you, independent wrestling becomes this giant networking thing where I, I can be in a different part of the country every weekend, and and I'll I'll probably know at least one or two people in a locker room. You know? Yeah, definitely. It's very it's very rare that I go somewhere for the first time and I don't know at least one person. Um, because you know they are doing the same kind of gig that I am, and and they're traveling, and and I mean, maybe we've crossed paths somewhere else, you know. So yeah, that only... is nice. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 I was gonna say you're right. That's that's only comparable at festivals. Like you don't have that same sort of experience in a band. Yeah. Whereas you know, like I was in the South last weekend, and I, you know, I was in Atlanta and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and saw people that you know I'm very accustomed to seeing there, and. uh you know, next weekend I might be in a different part of the U S and I'll, maybe I'll see some of the same people even, you know, so. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. No, that's that's the one thing you do. You don't have the outside of band camaraderie unless it is the festival. Well, you, occasionally you'll do a tour where you're on tour yes. with a bunch of other bands. But for the most part, it's just like you and your little crew for better or for worse as well. Yep. It's just like it's like the four horsemen just traveling everywhere. Right. Or uh, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever stable. They had a lot more fun. And then fucked up. Oh, I bet they had a lot more fun than, than a lot of bands, (laughs) but they were doing it on someone else's dime for the most part. So, yeah, well, this has been a lot of fun and anytime you want to come back here and, and talk some more, please know the door is always open. I, I, yeah, it took us forever to finally do it. I'm, I'm glad that we finally did. And, uh, and yeah, the punk wrestling connection run runs deep and, uh, and I appreciate that everything you've done for obviously not just for the visibility of punk, but the visibility of, 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 uh, wrestling, independent wrestling, uh, to all sorts of things, you know, like the, the voodoo wrestling in the Congo, which, uh, I, uh, obviously I, I made a t-shirt based off of that episode of, of the wrestlers, which I was nice enough to send you one. So. Yes. Uh, no, that, that means a lot. And I, and I think like, you know, you, your existence is proof that the punk wrestling connection is real. So thank you for uh, making it real. No, I appreciate it, man. That's, that's just who I am. And I'm happy to uh, get to share a little bit of my life with anyone and, and literally everyone who who's interested. So. Thank you, Daniel, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Daniel will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Check out that uh, piece by my buddy Martin. And uh, yeah, and and that is that. On to later on this week on the show. Later on this week on the show, we are kicking off 2021 with our first splits. And that is with... Joe from Rise Against, Daryl from the Boevils, friends for, I think we established it, it's well over three decades at this point. Well, just over three decades at this point. And yeah, this is a fantastic conversation with two unbelievably great former guests of the show or previous guests of the show back again for the splits. Oh, I'm very excited for you to hear it. I just literally finished recording um, like 10 minutes ago for it so hot off the presses Woo! all right that is that thank you everyone for listening remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous peoples matter we need to protect trans kids we need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence to towards people of different faiths and different nationalities and different it just just knock off the hate there's no reason for any of this bullshit this isn't political this is basic human rights stuff People deserve to live free and not be scared of violence, not be scared of uh, just oppression, not having to deal with that bullshit. So get involved in organizations that are doing positive change in the world or making positive change in the world, doing positive change, making positive change. Well, get involved, uh, donate your time, donate your money. If you got extra money, you know, um, and yeah, let's try and make the world a better place. You know, let's all work together because you know, Lord knows we, we gotta, we gotta start somewhere. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. Just give them away. Changes people's lives. I've seen it fucking happen. I've seen it with my own eyes 
happen. So sign those organ donor cards. On a cheerier note, go there and make your own culture in the interim before you have to relinquish your organs. You know, make a uh, make a dent on the world. Start a band, start a fanzine, start wrestling. You know, who knows where you go? Who knows what you do? Uh, and uh, that is that. Try meditation. It can help calm the world down a little bit for yourself. I didn't believe in it. Now I kind of do. And that is that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will see you on the next episode. Stay safe out there. Please try and stay safe. Love you. Bye.